SFTC Consultants is here to support your sales career through interviews, podcasts, videos, and articles about and around the best way to grow and develop as a sales professional. We have a list of high value and highly packed podcast episodes with Salesforce MVPs, consultants, CEOs, developers, and architects. Continuing the discussion trail around Salesforce consultancies and how to start and build a Salesforce consultancy, today I am sharing a conversation that I had with Kier Bowden, Chief Technology Officer at BrightGen, a platinum Salesforce consultancy based in the UK. We spoke about best practices, about strategy setting, R&D, upskilling your staff, and more. Now, enjoy my conversation with Kier. My name's Keir Bowden. I'm the CCO of BrightGen. We're a platinum Salesforce partner based in the UK. I've been in the software development industry for 33 years now. I've done some defense, lots of financial services, and in 2008, stumbled into Salesforce. I joined BrightGen as a consultant. I hadn't done pure consulting before, but probably the previous 10 years or so, I'd been in professional services. So I was customizing my own products, effectively, my own company's products. So the the partnership aspect was different for me, customizing somebody else's product as part of an implementation. So I think we were 11 people when I joined at BrightGen. I think we are, I don't know, we're about 120, 130 now. So grown quite significantly and changed quite a bit in the 12 years since I've been there, as has Salesforce and the Salesforce ecosystem, I would say. Specifically to Salesforce, in terms of a company and the relationship that it has with the partners, how has that changed in the last 10 years or so? Well, obviously, one of the one of the big things that's changed is Salesforce is, is a behemoth now. I think the last valuation was something like $150 billion. Obviously, if you go back 10 years, uh, it wasn't quite at that level. I think we were one of the earliest Salesforce partners in the UK, and I think EMEA. I think back in the day, we were called Top Gun Partners um, before they formalized it. And obviously, back then, it wasn't as structured as it is now. They've obviously, in the, in the last few years, brought over a lot of the um, Oracle partner people who've really streamlined and structured that. It's a much more, it's a tiered uh, partnership now as well. Obviously, what we have to upskill on to retain the partnership, the, the product set is, is a mile wide now, whereas it was a, a lot narrower 10 years ago. And also what's really changed is, is, in, is the dealing with customers. When I started, I mean, I, when I started in 2008, probably the first couple of three years, a lot of companies' IT departments didn't want Salesforce in. It was seen as shadow IT. It was seen as something that was usurping them. It was allowing marketing and sales to build their own systems without involving IT. Um, and it wasn't the, 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 they were what well, they were correct about. I mean, they were, they were incorrect to fear it because it was just another thing they needed to get some control over. But what they were correct about was it was be, because it was being done on the side. It was fine when it was just a small little system that tracked two or three people. But as things grew and the capabilities grew, you suddenly started getting siloed information outside of the rest of the business system. So that's, that's when integration suddenly became really, really interesting. And yeah, so it went from 2008, I would say a lot of the time IT were actively hostile. They didn't want to talk to you. They didn't want to hear about Salesforce. They didn't want to know. Around 2010, 2011, IT was starting to realize that this wasn't going to go away and they needed to be on the side of the winners. So most of the discussions then were about, okay, so what you bring is best practice. The sales guys and the marketing guys are going to want to um, bring this system in. So you're then going to wrap it around the center of excellence. You're going to have control. You're going to have processes for migrating change from sandbox into production. You're going to have integrations that have been specified in advance and built appropriately. And you're, you're going to bring the whole process, IT process around this system. And then probably fast forward about a year, 
suddenly everyone loves Salesforce and wants it. And it's, it's, it's calming them down almost in some of these workshops to say, yeah, that's all great, but you can't do that. We can't do that instantly. We have to take a step back and figure out how we get there and do it iteratively. So it's been an interesting journey from that perspective. It's one of the things I always say for people who are considering the technical architect certification um, right now is that that was invaluable. Going into places where they didn't want to know, they didn't want to hear what you had to say, and you had to really convince them that what you were talking about was the correct solution for them and their business was absolutely perfect for the, for the review board, where you're just getting peppered with questions and why should we do this and how should we do this. And I, I do feel that those going for CTA now haven't really probably had much of that experience. They've just known very happy, welcoming people. And a bit of adversity does actually help you grow, I think, in this space. The other thing I wanted to touch upon, specifically to Brian right now, what is your breadth of responsibility? What, what does your like week look like? What are the areas that you're looking into? My main role is to run the... So I'm CTO of Brian, so I have all-encompassing technical responsibility for making sure that we're doing things in the right way, that our approach is um, scalable and future-proofed. And some of that will be based on knowledge that I have through the um, MVP program as well, I guess, that gives us a, a little bit of access to more forward-looking information. But my main day-to-day responsibility, I run the IP team. So we basically develop intellectual property. So we don't particularly develop products that we launch on the App Exchange, although we do do some of that. But we're um, more focused on implementations, on you know, customer for life, service management, etc. So what we're looking to do is, is build IP, which takes away a lot of the pain for a customer, uh, maybe takes away 80% of the things that, that you have to do for every implementation, um, and then we have, a, on top of that, we have the 20%, which is tuning things for them, specifically integrating with their downstream and upstream systems, which may be specific and bespoke to them. Sometimes it'll also be replacing core pieces of functionality with their particular mechanism of doing something, which is obviously very bespoke to them, and they think it gives them a competitive advantage. So occasionally we will have to do that as well. So yeah, so that's kind of a main responsibility there. So I run a team of, what are we now? I think we're about 11 people that work on that side of things. I'll also, because those will typically lead to implementations, I'll also have some level of oversight typically on those implementations, um, normally looking at the designs and trying to figure out. A lot of the time, once you get to a certain level, effectively your job is just like looking for problems, looking for trouble. So you just go, I'm just going through design specifications and trying to figure out, okay, where is this not going to work? Where is this going to break? Then you have to remind yourself from time to time, I've found 10% that will break, but actually 90% was really good. So we must remember to praise that 90% and not just knock everything down. But yeah, and then again, that's an interesting thing over the journey because I always used to say when I was I was a principal consultant before I was promoted to CTO and that then took a couple of years to sort the IP side of things out to where it was a, a full department. Um, but I used to say to customers, my job here is to say no. So you've had you know, Salesforce salespeople in saying you can do all this out of the box, it's all great. And my job is to come in and basically let you down a bit and say, well, yeah, you can do that out of the box, but it won't give you what you need and you don't get integration, etc. So I come in and upset you from that perspective. And now I do that internally. You know, people do designs, people come up with ideas, and I then tell them, yeah, and they, uh, that idea isn't going to sell, so we're not going to build that, or this design, yeah, it just isn't going to quite fly, or this thing that you've built, you need to rebuild it a little bit. As well as, obviously, you know, onboarding, I write quite a lot of documentation. Uh, I still do get quite hands-on from time to time, um, probably more than I should, because I keep putting myself in situations where I've suddenly ended up on the critical path, which isn't very sensible and means that I don't necessarily have all my energies focused in exactly the right direction. And I'm, I often describe myself as the lender of last resort when it comes to technical problems as well, because I, I have some contacts within Salesforce that I can make use of from time to time. So sometimes I will have things escalated to me because somebody else in the company has an issue and they need some help with it. Yeah, or specifically thanks. around... The other thing that I look after is some of our tooling. So I'm, I'm quite keen on the Salesforce CLI. 
So I, I spent a lot of time um, producing a lot of tooling so that we were doing everything in a standard way uh, across the team and across the company. Because that's obviously the more we do of that, the more productive everybody is. In terms of standardization, I guess there are two areas here. You have the people that build and you also have you know people that, that implement. And you did say that you're writing a lot of documentation. What is your process around that? So we've, we've probably become more formalized about that over the last year or two. And we have... we've. Um, moved somebody into our team who's a bit more of a specialist around that side so we don't get them to do all of the work but what they're really good at is getting us started with the right framework and the right approach and then we iteratively build on it and things like that in terms of what actually is going to go in it i maintain a lot of google docs really i think is is, and i do do have the odd whiteboard with information on it but a lot of the time it's just scribbling notes down an entry on a to-do list which i'm on about my fifth to-do application at the moment i'm currently playing around with Basecamp. Um, just to see what that's like. Um, not because I needed a different one, but just because I haven't used it before and it looked quite interesting. Yeah, so I'll, I'll have notes on there of things that I need to do and then when I can snatch some time. And often back in the day, before the pandemic, that used travelling was always a good time to write documentation. Not so much now because I don't do any of it. The other thing I wanted to touch upon is uh, things like upskilling, like I said, and also keeping on, on top of onboarding. Salesforce have been pushing out so much in the last few years, acquiring other platforms. I think Heroku was a big thing for developers a few years ago whenever he came on board. And of course, the whole Lightning, web components, there's so much, there's so much. So my, my question to that is, how do you structure that internally? How do you keep your team up to date in a way and i do know that there is a big big part of any developer's uh, responsibility or skill to be able to know how to find solutions on google or documentation provided by the platform etc but I, I guess you do need some type of formalized procedure around that so what's something that you've put in place so i absolutely agree with you you do need i think some standardization around it otherwise everybody finds possibly a different solution a different approach a different way of doing things and I think also, um, if you want to make get people to be looking ahead rather than focusing on what they need to do their job now, but this is where it's a lot of what, because we're um, doing a lot of R&D type of stuff, we're using quite a lot of bleeding edge areas of, of the Salesforce platform. So I'll typically, we'll have our various kickoffs and I'll be talking about, we're going we're gonna to use this, it's currently in beta, but it looks highly likely it's going to go into production. So we need to be upskilling on that. So getting slightly ahead of the curve. So obviously we have Trailhead for an awful lot of it. So we use trail mixes quite a bit where there'll be... And, and often what will happen is if it's, a, if it's a new technology, when we first started using developer control packages. So what I did with that is I did the, some initial development, built our first package. Then I did a lunch and learn, did like an hour, hour and a half of talking about the various pros and cons, the gotchas and the ideas behind it. And then out of that, the call to action will be, here's the trail mix. So here are the various badges that are complete on, on um, Trailhead that will give you the appropriate level of understanding. Um, and what that means, everyone's got the same grounding because I've given them that and everyone then goes through the same path. And so that, no, at that point in time, whoever does the next piece of work, we've got a level standard that everybody should have achieved by then. We also do quite a lot of onboarding because obviously we're, we're upskilling people to work on, on the app accelerators that we've built. So a big one at the moment is Bright Media. And that is quite a large thing. So there's quite a lot to learn. It's quite a lot to learn about the media industry anyway and then about all the functionality we've built. So for that, we have um, something we call Bright Media University. It's an internal thing where there is um, a bunch of training material and a bunch of hands-on exercises like how to create a scratch org, how to deploy. And then we have exercises of basically here is a requirement. Um, clone the repo, this particular repo, implement this requirement, submit it for code review. And then we'll have uh, some of our tech leads will go through that and then look to, to identify whether it is an appropriate 
um, solution, etc. So we do, and I think that thing would be quite difficult to do with the likes of Trailhead. It's a bit more follow along, small changes, but that has really that really proves invaluable. I think because it's once people start thinking at that level, they sometimes need to go back and refresh themselves on some of the early material. But it really helps it stick, and it gives us a really good idea of you know can people read requirements correctly? Can they actually understand? And we try and write them like customers do as well. So we try and leave a little bit of ambiguity in there. There's there's potential approaches, maybe a couple of hints about the way that you should be looking to do it. Yeah, and I think, I think that thing is very time consuming. It's quite labor intensive. But if you can get past that, then the benefits are, are large. But it is for those of those of those of you like me who are writing the uh, documentation and also evaluating the results, that can be quite difficult because it consumes so much time to remember that the bigger picture is that we get highly skilled people coming out the other end. I would want to flip this away from like the very hands-on tasks. And I would really want to think about Brightgen as a company and strategy setting. So my question would be is where do you, where do you see the technology and where do you see yourself uh, within that, that strategy setting of, of the company and how important is Salesforce part of that, part of that discussion in terms of where it's going and what else can you guys add to your portfolio and, and what's next for the company? I mean, sales, we're, we're a platinum Salesforce partner. Um, all we do is Salesforce. So obviously, Salesforce is extremely important to us. And that's what makes the CTO aspect of the job relatively straightforward, because I'm not looking out across a whole landscape of possible um, application vendors. I'm just looking at Salesforce and what they're doing. That's getting more difficult as time goes on, because it gets wider and wider and wider. So the, the strategy is an interesting one, because I have a peer chief architect who runs the delivery side of things. And they will set their own strategy. They'll have their own templated ways of doing things, which we will feed into and we get to review, etc. And we try to we'll have a feedback loop so that people that are implementing things like Bright Media will be feeding back to us. We have a, we have, in terms of things like integration, there's quite, a, quite a, a straightforward logical separation because we don't really do an awful lot of integration because it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's so many systems out there. Think of how many financial systems. There's loads of ad sales systems. So we, we could have an entire team dedicated to building those integrations and potentially no one would ever use them. So we see that as being something that a delivery team would do. And the delivery team has their own approach to integration, which makes a lot of sense. As you can imagine, one of the things we're looking at at the moment is MuleSoft and you know, trying to make more use of that. So again, we're very much guided by what Salesforce are doing. Internally on the IP team, for example, we do integrate. We integrate to Google Ad Manager because that is by far the biggest ad planning system, or digital ad planning system there is. So, And that's that's quite a... A chatty API as well. It's not just a fire and forget type of thing. So there's a lot of interaction, a lot of updating data. So that made sense for us to do that one and maintain it. So there is there is a higher level technical direction which I set for the entire company. And just to give you an example um, of the, if you go back, I think three years probably my technical direction. Then my overview for the next um, year to two years was all about JavaScript. So JavaScript is clearly the future. Aura components are coming. And what I didn't realize at the time, it seemed obvious that it was going to be something that we needed to get on board with. Obviously, Lightning Web Components came along, and then Salesforce CLI with plugins being written in TypeScript or JavaScript. Um, it just feels like we're going to do more and more. And Salesforce Functions coming up, obviously, you know, building stuff on Node, um, JavaScript is going to be a, a fairly straightforward way of doing that, I think. So it's, it's looking at what expertise we need to be able to make best use out of what is coming out of Salesforce. And you have to make a bit of a judgment call as well, because obviously we could upskill on everything that Salesforce do and never actually use them. So it has to it has to layer into the sales team as well with what asks they're seeing from customers. 
And a lot of the work we do is at the the, the large enterprise scale, the, the the gnarly end of the business where projects are quite lengthy, um, normally involve integration with multiple systems. And if you're going in somewhere where there is an existing Salesforce implementation, what you're likely to find is that probably isn't at the bleeding edge. So you may need to make sure you've got appropriate visual force skills if there's still quite a bit of that kicking around. So it's, it's, it's trying to keep up with the new without discarding the old. And then there's, there's other areas that I really don't have much involvement at all. So if you look at things like CPQ, field service lightning, we have separate practices for that with practice leads, uh, marketing cloud as well, separate practice leads who know that inside out and will have their own dedicated team who I would say would specialize in that. It's not that they can't do other things, but that would be their main focus. So, And I think we've realized that maybe four or five years ago, we had to split out into practices because there was no way that we were going to have to have individuals uh, keeping the entirety of that product set in their head to the appropriate degree. Try as try as we might, Salesforce just buy stuff faster than we could learn about it. The last thing that I wanted to ask from my side is in terms of careers and getting into Salesforce as, as a career, I've had a few people on the podcast and that moved in via the accidental admin part and then they ended up liking it and potentially they moved into development or some people that just went straight into development. And some people that went to university and ended up in here. So what I was going to ask, what would be, not really a recommendation, but what would be your, in case you were to protocol start again and potentially have coincidentally chosen the same career path, such as getting to Salesforce, what would be your way of, of starting that? Sure, that's going, to be, that's going to be slightly difficult because my background is basically, um, you know, software development at college and then straight into software development jobs. So it's always been heavyweight programming. And also... If you look at most of the people that we hire into Brighter, because we're all from an enterprise development background, if you go, go back to when I joined, I think just about everybody had about 15, 20 years of enterprise development or enterprise sales. So we'd all worked in that area. Obviously, as time goes on, you can't just hire people with 30 years experience every time. So that does change a little bit. On my team, on the IP side of things, we, all, we, we do grow through graduates um, every year. So we, we build from the bottom up and we train people up. And we've got quite a good pipeline going on that. So we've got, you know, it's a bit tricky the first couple of years because you haven't necessarily got an awful lot of senior experience around. So you have to borrow from other parts of the company. But over time, that works um, really, really well for me because because a lot of what we do is is very deep development on the platform. We're stretching and bending the platform, especially with our bright media product. For other areas of the business, I think a lot of it comes down to, to attitude. And a lot of consultants, especially Salesforce implementations, once you get away from the very large enterprises, they tend to be short. They tend to be short and sharp. So um, you're not necessarily doing six months design and then a, a year's worth of implementation and building huge frameworks to, to work in, etc. A lot of it can be in and out, need a few triggers, need a few flows, that thing. So I would say in terms of, get, of getting a start in, if you come from a graduate background in, in computer science, in, in software development, then that's a lot more straightforward because they'll always, you, you just, there's so much that about actually writing software that you don't have to be taught that you can really hit the ground running. If you're coming at it from a slightly different direction, I think the, the most important thing for me, um, thinking back to when I used to interview people on the delivery side who weren't from a necessarily a formal background. It used to be the traditional background, didn't it? But almost everyone comes from a non-traditional background now. So non-traditional is the new traditional. But what I, I used to look for, uh, show me what you've done. So even if you hadn't actually worked in that space, if you've been teaching yourself about Salesforce and you've been building things, get it on GitHub, show me a site, show me some, show me the cool stuff that you built. And some people have shown me some amazing things, including systems that you really could have plugged into a real estate company and they could have used to sell their, uh, their properties. And that was just people just getting really excited about what they could do with the platform and building on it. 
one thing I would say about that, which I is, is I've heard suggested many, many times, is go and work for a nonprofit, go and volunteer for a nonprofit. And actually, a lot of the time, nonprofits don't really want people learning on their system. They want the volunteers, but they prefer they've got a bit more experience and expertise because they're a bit worried. Obviously, it's their lifeblood. So that's, I mean, that's not necessarily the greatest thing. So I, I would say build stuff and get involved in the community and start contributing to the community. See if you can get a bit of a name for yourself helping people. Even if you don't think very much, there's people coming to the community, nothing at all. They might not be getting the help because everybody else is operating at a slightly higher level than that. And those kind of things can really make a difference when you go in for an interview with a company just because you've shown uh, that you're a self-starter and that you're really interested and passionate in what you're doing. And there's really no substitute for that. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your background and some of the tips and recommendations that you've put. In case uh, people want to reach out, read what you're posting, some of the things that you've been posting recently on your blog, I think are, are a gold mine. So what's the best way for people to see what you're doing? So the Bob Buzzer blog, if you just Google Bob Buzzer blog, um, you'll find that. It's on Blogger. I'm also on Twitter at, um, at Bob underscore Buzzard. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, Keir Bowden, Facebook. I'm, I'm typically not difficult to spot because I'm quite noisy on social media. Realistically, I'm on all of those things. So if anybody reaches out to me, LinkedIn, it can occasionally get a bit lost in terms of all the communications I get from companies and recruiters and the like. Twitter is, is always a really good way. DMs on Twitter or mentions on Twitter are always a good way of getting my attention. Blogs, uh, comments on the blog, eventually I do get around to them, but again, I get so much spam that it's all moderated. So probably once a week, I go through 50 posts of various things that you wouldn't really want to read if you had a choice. So that's not always the best way of getting hold of me either. But yes, uh, Twitter's probably my favorite. Thank you for listening to the SFDC Consultant Podcast. Be sure to visit sfdcconsultant.com to access the show notes and discover additional content. If you enjoy the podcast, it would be amazing if you could subscribe, give us a review and share it with your peers. Until next time, take care.